Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the mysterious, marvelous plan of salvation that you authored and you carried out according to your word, culminating with this day, a day in which the victory was won over death and a future was made possible for those of faith who follow your son, Jesus, our Lord. This day, Father, is a day that you promised, a day that you brought about by your power and through the obedience of your son. It's not a day to celebrate our works or our righteousness or our worthiness. It is not a day in which we matter, Father, but a day only in which your son matters. The creator of all things, the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made, and who brought to conclusion a plan that you set forth before the foundations of the earth. And on that day, Father, when victory was won over death as he walked out of the grave and our future was secure in that, Father, you set forth to teach the world about that moment. You recorded it in your word. You've shared it throughout the centuries with all who would listen, who have ears to hear. And you did so, Father, by your own power, for your own glory, by your grace. This is about you today, Father, as it always should be. And we honor you and thank you for the privilege, for the blessing, for the mercy and forgiveness that we have received in Christ in the day today when we can celebrate it most of all. For he walked out of that tomb, Father, proving he is who he said he was. And Father, we're thankful for that. Lord, show us in your word today why that day is so very important. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, welcome to our observance of Easter Sunday. This is a day we remember Jesus raised from the grave. The Bible says he was raised before dawn on the first day of the week, which on the Jewish calendar is Sunday, just as it is on our calendar today. And so it's for that reason that Christians everywhere have taken to celebrating the day Jesus rose by observing it on the first Sunday after a Passover. And Passover this year happened on Thursday. This last Thursday was the Jewish Passover. And so here we are Sunday on Easter. Now as it turns out, in the week Jesus died, Passover also happened on a Thursday, which is not always the case. Passover moves around on the day of the week because it's based on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. And so Sometimes these, uh, Passover falls on different days of the week. This year, it fell on Thursday. So in effect, we're repeating the very same pattern of events that happened in the week that Jesus died. Now, as we continue studying in the Gospel of Matthew in weeks to come, we're at the point in that account where Jesus is in Jerusalem preparing for his death. And so in the very near future, we're gonna study the Passion account all the way through in great detail and learn all that we can from it, seeing how that week played out. But today, as I said, is Easter. Now, typically, when I reach a day like this, Easter, maybe Christmas, I will take a break from my verse-by-verse studies in whatever book I'm in at the time so that I can teach about the significance of that day and acknowledging that day. I usually will preach on some topic related to the day, like on Easter, I'll teach about the resurrection of Jesus because Easter is all about resurrection. The, the fact that Jesus' dead body came back to life and walked out of the tomb. But in the providence of God, we happen to find ourselves today in the Gospel of Matthew in a passage that fits the topic of Easter perfectly. So instead of venturing out of our verse-by-verse study, today I'm just gonna continue forward 
in the study, exactly as the Lord planned, apparently, because the topic that the Lord prepared for us to study today in the chapter that we're in, in chapter 22 of Matthew, is none other than resurrection. So, let's return to the scene that we're in in Matthew 22. It's the Tuesday before Jesus died. Jesus is still in the temple, as you know, teaching, being challenged by various religious leaders. They are intent on discrediting him. They're trying to uh, show that Jesus is not who he claims that he is, and they've been coming at him in waves, one group after another, each group trying to trap him with some trick question. Last week, we studied a trap that was set by two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They brought that question about paying the poll tax to Caesar. They asked, is it right that they should pay that tax? And they were trying to lead Jesus into a trap. Either Jesus was going to say that Jews should not pay that tax, and if he did that, well, then the Romans would be upset at him. Or Jesus was going to say that Jews should pay the tribute to Caesar, and in which case then the people of Israel would have been upset at him because he was encouraging idolatry, they thought. But Jesus sidesteps the whole problem by explaining that the tax could actually be paid without it being a tribute to Caesar and therefore a risk of idolatry. And it was that way because the denarius was worthless to a Jew. Since that Roman coin had no value to a Pharisee, then it only had value to Caesar. And that's why he says, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're giving away something that they don't value in the first place. And if you're giving away something that you place no value on, then it's not a personal sacrifice, in which case it's not a tribute. But then Jesus added that comment at the end. He said, you should give to God what is God's. And what he meant by that was the religious leaders had been missing the forest for the trees. They were worried about giving Caesar too much honor. Meanwhile, they weren't honoring God at all. And specifically, when the Messiah came to them, They were preparing to kill him rather than obey him. So Jesus won that round, round two if you're keeping track, and it's now time for round three of this back and forth between him and the religious leaders. And the topic for round three on this Easter morning is resurrection. Look with me in chapter 22. We're in verse 23. I'll start reading there. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died, and the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? for they all had married her. All right, that's the trap. The Sadducees have come back now to take a second shot at Jesus. You may remember they showed up at the first round with the Pharisees, but now they've come back, and as they do, Matthew adds this parenthetical comment about these guys. In verse 23, Matthew says that the Sadducees were those who said there was no resurrection. Now, the Sadducees taught this. They said that the notion of a future bodily resurrection for the believer, for the saints, was nothing more than a fairy tale. And to understand why they said that, you first need to understand what resurrection is and what it is not. Resurrection is not the spirit of a person rising up from their dead body, kind of like the way you see ghosts coming out of cartoon figures when they die in, you know, Roadrunner and, and, and Coyote cartoons and the like. 
if people think the resurrection is the ghost of the person, the spirit of the person rising up to heaven, you, you don't understand resurrection. Resurrection is a dead body returning to life. It's when Jesus came out of the grave after three days in the tomb. His body was alive again. Or even in the case of Lazarus, back in John chapter 11, when Jesus calls him out of the tomb after three days. It was his physical body walking out again. That's resurrection. Now, in the case of our resurrection that's promised to the believer, we don't get back our original body like Jesus did. When we die, our physical bodies go into a grave or however you dispose of them, and they eventually return to dust, and they're never gonna be seen again. From the moment we die, we exist in heaven, the Bible says, in spirit form only with the Lord, waiting for our resurrection day. So our ghost, if you will, our spirit has already gone to heaven, but we haven't been resurrected yet. There is a day to come, the Bible says, when the Lord will give to all saints a new eternal body, one that is substantially similar to the one we have now, but different in some ways, particularly in in one important way, we will not have sin in that new body, and therefore that body will never die. We will live again in a physical body, to be on this earth again, enjoying it, but without the problem of sin and death. Now, the Sadducees just didn't believe any of that. They did not believe in literal resurrection, which means they did not believe that God was gonna grant his people new physical bodies. Here's what they taught instead. Sadducees taught that the saints would remain eternally in spirit form only, living with God in the heavenly realm. And for that reason, they also did not believe in a literal physical kingdom here on earth. So for them, life on earth in this body was the only one we were ever gonna know. And after we die, we just live in some ethereal state in heaven forevermore after that. Now, that view was very different from the view that Pharisees held. Pharisees believed in a literal physical resurrection. And for the same reason, they believed in a literal kingdom on earth as promised by God. So the question of whether resurrection was true or not had become a major sticking point between Sadducees and Pharisees. They often debated this point. And it's for that reason that the Sadducees decided to bring that question to Jesus because they had perceived from Jesus' teaching that he agreed with the Pharisees that resurrection was literally true. So to prove their point and to embarrass Jesus, they contrived this ridiculous scenario Uh, this, This story of a woman and these husbands that have died, all of this is designed to simply prove their view that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous. And their scenario is built upon a certain law coming out of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 5, a law called the Leverite marriage. It's a way of providing for the continuation of the family name in Israel when you have a childless widow. So the law said that if a woman married and then her husband died before giving her a male heir, then there was still to be an heir for that family line. And the way it was gonna be accomplished was she would marry one of the unmarried brothers of the man who died. And then the first son that would be born to that couple would actually take the name of the dead man and propagate his family line on. And the Sadducees said that requirement in the law, that Leverite marriage requirement, was proof, they thought, that the concept of resurrection was simply unworkable in practice. I mean, in their example, you imagine this woman who's married and then widowed, and then she enters into a Leverite marriage with one of the brothers, 
but then that man dies also, and so she marries another brother, and this continues on a total of six times in the story, and each time that that brother dies, the next one steps up and marries the woman, trying to produce a male heir. After all is said and done, she's married seven different guys, and then she dies. And then, in the resurrection, the Sadducees imagine, well, they're all reunited, they're all back in their bodies again, they're all living on the earth again, here we are, a woman with these seven guys. And so they ask, which of those seven guys now is truly her husband in the resurrection? And what they're doing, of course, is mocking the idea that people return to physical bodies, that there is this uh, picking up again of your life where it left off after you died. And under those circumstances, they imagine that you're going to encounter, inevitably, serious problems. Things like this problem with a bunch of resurrected ex-spouses all standing around trying to figure out who's married to who at what point. So for them, that scenario makes the idea of resurrection, a literal physical resurrection, impossible. They assume it just, it's not workable, and as a result, they expect that as Jesus tries to address this concern, he's gonna look foolish in trying to untangle all of these conflicts. And after that, this question gets posed and Jesus struggles with it, what they plan to do, I'm sure, is turn to the crowd and say, look, Jesus has got all these silly notions about God and heaven. He obviously doesn't know what he's talking about, and they would discredit him. And as a bonus, they'd also be discrediting the Pharisees who disagreed with them on resurrection. Now, before we look at Jesus' response to this trap, you might be tempted to ask yourself this question as you hear this story. You might be thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? I mean, it, it sounds like an academic debate, doesn't it? It's like when theologians sit around today and, and debate how many angels fit on the head of a pin or can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, those questions where you think, what's the point anyway? Well, if that's what you're thinking about this question, let me help you reset that understanding because in reality, this is a critically important question. In fact, there is no single issue in all the New Testament more important than the topic of resurrection. Your entire faith, your very salvation, depends on this question, on whether there is a literal, physical resurrection in our future. Do you know that the Bible calls your resurrection, your hope. You've no doubt read in the New Testament passages in which Paul or one of the other writers will talk about your hope or having hope. Paul uses that word 44 times in his New Testament epistles. He says things like, uh, in hope we have been saved or hope doesn't disappoint. You've heard this phrase, right? Well, you need to understand, hope is not some general thought, some you know, ambiguous feeling of expectation or anticipation. Hope is a very specific thing in Scripture. I want you to consider these three statements by Paul. In Galatians 5.5, 5, he says this, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. In Colossians 1.27, he says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. Now, did you know that in all of those cases I just read, and many more, when Paul uses the term hope, he is specifically talking about our expectation of a physical, literal resurrection. That's what he's talking about. 
The hope of the Christian faith is this, that we will rise from the dead into a new physical body and we will live again on this earth in a real life. That is the hope of the Christian faith. In Galatians 5.5, Paul calls resurrection the hope of righteousness because resurrection is the outcome for those who are righteous by faith. It is the hope of those who are righteous, the hope of righteousness. In Colossians 1.27, Paul says that resurrection is our hope of glory because our resurrection is the moment we receive glory, we receive a glorified body. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul said we ought not grieve for the dead believers because that would be acting as if we have no hope of resurrection. But because we know they'll live again, in a body again, with us again, there's no reason to grieve them like those who don't have that expectation, that don't have that hope. Your faith in Jesus Christ leads to your hope for resurrection. Now, you and I are not yet in our eternal glorified bodies, which is obvious, but that's why it's called a hope. Paul says, what do you ho- why do you hope for what you already have? You hope for what you don't have, which is the point. We're not there yet, but we know it's coming. And we anticipate that day. And I may add, your hope for that future day of resurrection is not an unreasonable or senseless hope. On the contrary, our hope in a future resurrection is sensible, it is rational, and it is well-founded. Why? Well, because of Jesus' own resurrection. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are testifying that you believe his claims. And we should ask, What did he claim? Well, for example, in John 5, 21, Jesus says this, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. And in John 6, 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone that beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, in those two quotes, Listen to what Jesus claims. He claims that he has the power, by virtue of the Father giving it to him, he has the power to raise people from the dead, or as we would say, to resurrect people, to give them new living bodies one day. He promises anyone who puts faith in him is going to be resurrected on the last day. So in the time to come, what we're hearing is Jesus plans to perform, for lack of a better term, a mass resurrection of all followers, just prior to the start of the kingdom so that we will be in the form that we need to be in so that we can go into the kingdom with him and enjoy that life. Now that's a bold claim. And you know, words are cheap. Anyone can say that. So how do we know Jesus truly has the power that he claimed to have to do that, to give us this hope of resurrection? Well, you know, first in his earthly ministry, we have the accounts in the gospel of him actually performing resurrections like the one on uh, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus that I mentioned earlier. But his ultimate proof came when he foretold his own resurrection. In Luke 9, 22, we read this. The Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus predicted his own death and he predicted his own resurrection. But now we have a new question. We know Jesus said he could raise other people, but who's going to raise Jesus? If he dies, who's raising him from the dead? Well, listen to what he said in John 10, John 10, 17. 
He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So do you know that Jesus promised not only that he would be resurrected, but that he would resurrect himself? Now, that's an audacious claim. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of people over the centuries that have come along and said, oh, I can raise people from the dead. And truly, a few have had that power, and I'm thinking principally of the apostles who received that power from Jesus, and we have the stories in the book of Acts of people being raised from the dead. But to my knowledge, no one has ever promised to be able to raise himself from the dead and then actually do it. No one except Jesus. And Jesus promised not only to have that power, but then he settled all doubts about it when he walked out of that grave after three days on that first Easter Sunday. Now, why is all this so important? Well, because the hope of the Christian faith is knowing that we will live again in a body on this earth, that death is not the end of us. It is just a transition and as Jesus talked about that day to come, there's a day of resurrection coming. When it comes, we put death behind us forever. You will one day live inside a new body, one that is substantially similar to the one you have now, except I, I think I'll be taller and better looking and we all hope for the same, but the key difference is we're not gonna die again and we will never get sick again, which is particularly prone to producing hallelujahs right now, I know. You'll never suffer you will never know disappointment, you will never know heartache, and you will have no sin. And in that day, when you receive that new body again, you're gonna walk on this earth again. And you're gonna enjoy all the things that you once took for granted, frankly. You're gonna hold someone's hand again. You're gonna see your own face in the mirror again, only this time it's not gonna get older. It's not gonna age. It's gonna look the same forever. Hopefully we'll like what we see. You're gonna be to go, uh, going for walks. You're gonna swim in the ocean. You're gonna eat a meal. You're gonna sing a song. You're gonna do all of the things that you can do with an earthly body and yet not worry that any of that joy will ever be taken away from you, that your body will ever fail, and that the things you enjoy could ever cease. That is the Christian hope. So when you hear the word hope in the Bible refer, referring to our salvation, that's what it's talking about. Our forward expectation, our look into the future, our eyes for eternity that know that one day in resurrection we get to escape this fleeting life and we get to embrace an eternal life that God has prepared for us. That hope is based in something real and rational. It's not hope in a fairy tale. We know it's real because Jesus raised himself from the dead to prove to us he could do it. His resurrection, by the way, is probably the best documented event in ancient history. We have literally 40,000 ancient manuscripts that all testify to this event. His crucifixion was witnessed by hundreds of people. Everyone knows he died. He was in a grave for three days. And yet, his resurrected appearances were also witnessed by hundreds over weeks of time, and the four Gospels testify to this, and they were written by men who lived through that time, who witnessed these things themselves, and testified to what they saw. Now, if Jesus had not proven his claims, if his body had died and stayed dead, then there would be no reason to put any faith in him or anything he said. If someone says, I have the gift of eternal life, I know how to give you victory over death, and then when they die, they can't even give that to themselves, don't trust them. You know, Muhammad's still in the grave. Confucius, still in the grave. 
you name them, they're still in the grave. Only one person ever made that trip out, and that's Jesus. So you put your hope in the one who proved he could do it. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped, there's that word again, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, well, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Paul says, you know, if this whole Christian thing was just about a hope that Christ would give you your best life now, well, then Paul says, we're a sad bunch because we have pitied, we have, we have reason to be pitied more than anyone else. We have denied ourselves the pleasures of sinful life for what reason? So that we'd have nothing to show for it after we died? If this is the end of it, then why not, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Now, Paul says that is not our situation because Christ was raised from the dead and that fact changes everything. It means that death is not the end of us because he can make it that way for us. He can resurrect us. He can do for us what he did for himself. Give us a new living body. That's why this question that the Sadducees posed to Jesus was so important. It's why his answer is so important because if the Sadducees were right and resurrection is just some cruel joke, then our faith is completely worthless and our hope is a farce. And you might as well quit the whole thing now because you got a few years left on this earth, make the most of it. So how does Jesus deal with the question? Well, he deals with it by showing how these men had gravely misunderstood the scriptures. In Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. All right, Jesus says plainly, at the beginning of his response, these guys were mistaken. And they were mistaken because they assumed too much about what life in the kingdom was like, and they assumed too little about the power of God. First, they misunderstood how resurrection worked. And they did that because they misunderstood how life in the kingdom will be. You know, they had just assumed that after we're resurrected, that is, after we get our new living bodies and we're back on this earth again, they assumed that our life here will just pick up kind of where it left off. You know, everything the same, brief interruption, back again, all right, let's continue on. And under those circumstances, you have this problem of marriage continuing, and as such, this conundrum. How, how do we know who's married to who, after all? They thought our present world was the pattern for the next life. And in some sense, that's true. Yeah, there are gonna be some similarities. We're still gonna have our identity, you're still going to know who you are and who other people are. You're going to have a daily life that is, in some respects, similar to what we have now. You get up every morning. You go to bed at night. There's going to be things we do every day. Yeah, that, that part of what makes life what it is will continue. But in the details of all of that, the Bible tells us that life in our resurrected time is going to be considerably different in some key ways to the way we enjoy life now. And one of the biggest differences, of course, is the absence of sin in our lives. By the way, we're studying a lot of these differences right now in our study of Revelation on Tuesday nights, and I say that just because if this area interests you, we don't have time today to get into it all, but you can learn more about that if you join us at that time. And I would tell you as a fellow believer, the reason the Lord puts so much of this topic into the Bible is not so that we would ignore it, 
It's so that we would learn it, and in learning it, we'd anticipate it, and we begin to live for that life and not for this one. So it's, I think, very important that believers come to understand what's coming for us. But Jesus says one of those key differences between the life we have now and the one that God prepares for us in our resurrected form is the elimination of the institution of marriage. Now, if you're home with your spouse right now, I would counsel against any amens at this point. Now, in the kingdom, we will no longer have husband-wife relationships, nor will we desire such attachments. Jesus says we'll be like angels. And what he means by that is we will know and live the way angels know and live. You know, angels were created by God to serve him in a, a singular form without other attachments within the angelic community. They're devoted to the Lord, and I should add, they are completely satisfied in that relationship such that no other relationship is necessary. And that will be our future as well. We will not be in this new state longing for the days when we could have had marriage and all that comes with it. Somehow, in the power of God, we will exist in a state in which those things have passed away and we are not missing them at all. Now, the Sadducees had this trick question designed to highlight a problem that now Jesus says is actually not a problem. It's just nonsense. They had imagined something that just won't exist those men and that woman and their example and their scenario, they're just gonna be brothers and sisters in this future world, in this future life after the resurrection. Their marriage relationships will have been a thing of the past. And so the scenario that they thought would prove uh, resurrection was foolish just turned out to prove that they are foolish. And isn't it amazing how wrong assumptions that we might make about God or about the Bible can lead us into some ridiculous conclusions. I mean, these men assumed that marriage existed in the kingdom. It was an assumption on their part. And on that basis alone, they dismissed one of the most important truths of the Bible. That's a good example of the danger of interpreting the Bible based on assumptions and failing to take it for what it says. Because the Bible says plainly that there is a resurrection coming. But apparently the Sadducees said that can't be true because they couldn't imagine how it could actually be. They saw problems with it, and until those problems were solved in their own thinking, they couldn't accept what the scriptures said. Now look, here's a simple rule of good Bible study. When what the Bible tells you is something that you don't understand, accept it without understanding it. That's okay. That is a perfectly reasonable approach to the Bible, that you know something is true because it says so, even if you don't know why or how that thing can be true. Don't dismiss it simply because your understanding is not equal to God. You don't have to change it. You don't have to dismiss it or walk around it. You just have to let God be God and say, one day I'll understand what this means, but for now I accept it for what it says. And that leads to the second mistake that the Sadducees made. Jesus says, not only did they not understand scripture, he says, they didn't understand the power of God. God has the power to do literally anything you can imagine and a whole lot more that you can't imagine. So when the Bible says there is a kingdom coming on this earth, you'll be in that world in a physical body, it'll be an amazing life, I know that it raises countless questions. I have some of those same questions, but how about this or what about that or what about this? That's okay. Those questions have answers. We'll get them sooner or later. In the meantime, we can be content with an understanding that there is going to be this place. We are going to be there. It is going to be a resurrected life, and the rest of it will work out when we get there. 
God is gonna make sure we understand it. We can trust all of that though because we know the power of God to do anything. Never underestimate the power of God. When you underestimate that God can do something that he says he can do, you will inevitably misunderstand the Bible at some point. Because what you'll do is look for reasonable, quote, reasonable explanations, things you can understand to make sense of things that you don't understand. And as such, you diminish the power of God. You move it from where it is in God's power to do anything to what we can imagine God can do. It's just like the Sadducees here. They assumed that the rules we live under now with respect to marriage are the rules we'll live under then. But remember, God wrote the rules. He wrote all of them. The laws of the universe, God wrote. And he can change them anytime he wants. And he apparently is gonna change them in the kingdom. You know, in our world, the rules of our world today say that a man cannot walk on water. But Jesus did it. Uh, The rules of our life say you can't turn water into wine, you can't multiply fishes and loaves, but Jesus did it. You know, in our life, dead things don't come back to life, but in Jesus' power, dead things come back to life. And we know these things happen because God's word tells us these things happen. And the Bible also tells us that an ark saved man and animals from a flood and the Red Sea was parted and the sun stood still in the sky for hours and a virgin gave birth. None of those things are possible in our understanding of life. They don't follow our rules, but God can do them. And you cannot force God to operate according to the limits of this world because he's the one who sets the limits and so he can change them. And if you're gonna understand the Bible properly, including passages about the future, passages of prophecy that seem to say things that just don't make sense to us, you need to stop right there and say to yourself, it's because God can do anything that this can be true. And it's also why we might struggle to understand it. But that's not how the Sadducees felt. You know, in the religious spectrum of Israel, I told you at an earlier time that the Sadducees represented the liberal end. And when we say the word liberal, I'm not thinking in terms of our modern political world. I'm thinking in terms of the religious mindset of the day. A liberal thought of the day looked to rationalize what they read, to make what the scriptures said fit into the world that they knew at the time. You might say it's a very practical view, a a view that looks at the world from a practical point of view. Whereas a conservative mindset, like the Pharisees had on the other end, their view was to look at what God did from a heavenly point of view and accept it for what it said and then magnify it as they often did. So the Sadducees being liberal, they interpreted the Bible according to what they already understood and could imagine, and as a result, they did not take into account the power of God. You know, there's a lot of bad theology that's come along in the centuries of the church. Some of it's still floating around today, of course. And if you look at it closely, a lot of that bad theology comes from people who suffer from exactly the same two problems that the Sadducees suffered for. One, you don't know the scriptures well, or two, you don't understand the power of God. In verse 31, Jesus concluded by saying, you know, even Moses testified that resurrection was true. And he quotes from Exodus chapter three, verse six. That's the moment when God introduces himself to Moses and calls Moses to go back to Egypt. And as God introduces himself to Moses, he refers to himself as the God of three men. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now you know those men were the patriarchs of Israel. But by the time that God appears to Moses here in Exodus chapter three, Those three men had long since passed away, and yet, in the way God spoke of himself, he said he is 
the God of those men. Not was, but is. So Jesus points out, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So if God was still calling himself the God of these men after they died in that day, well then clearly those men had not ceased to exist. They continued to live in the heavenly realm, in a spirit form, somewhere, in some place, so that God was still correct in calling himself the God of these three men. But that just raises a question. How does that prove the truth of resurrection? Because we know that at that moment, they had not yet been resurrected. They weren't living on the earth again in physical form. So how is it that simply saying they're still alive somewhere in some form, how does that prove resurrection? Well, the answer comes from knowing that there was a special meaning attached by Jews to any time someone used those three names together. Whenever a Jew would say, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in one single sentence, they weren't just describing those three men. They were referencing the covenant that God gave to them. That's what links those three men in Jewish thinking. These three men are the three men that God appeared to and individually each gave the same covenant, the covenant we now call the Abrahamic covenant because it started with Abraham. But it didn't stop there. God appeared to Isaac later, and then again to Jacob, and in all three cases gave them the same covenantal promise. So now, whenever Israel refers to that covenant, they aren't as commonly known to call it the Abrahamic covenant as they are to call it the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, when you hear that phrase mentioned, it's more than just a reference to the men, it's a reference to the covenant as well. And in that covenant, you find the basis for all the blessings God has promised to Israel. And in particular, in that covenant, God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they and their descendants would live securely in an inheritance of land in the place of Canaan. You find that in one verse, for example, in Genesis chapter 17, verse eight, the Lord says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, notice, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all received this promise, and yet none of them ever saw it fulfilled in their lifetime. All of them went to the grave without ever having received what was just promised in that verse. They did not receive all of Canaan and keep it for an everlasting period of time, did they? They died without receiving the promise of that inheritance, and many generations of Jews after them likewise have died without receiving what was promised. So If God is to be truthful to his promise, then there has to be a resurrection, and that's Jesus' point. The only way these three men and their descendants will get what's promised in that covenant is if they are brought back to earth in a future day in new physical bodies to live on this physical earth so that they can receive that physical plot of land and live in it the way God promised. There is no other way to keep that promise except in that way. And so his point to these men is, if he had even paid attention to what God had said to Moses in that moment, you would understand that resurrection is a necessity. It is an inevitability or else God is a liar. Pick one. Back in the New Testament in Hebrews, we read this, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Speaking of these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, the writer says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and welcomed them from a distance, confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That, in a nutshell, friends, is living with eyes for eternity. 
That is, knowing that what we've been promised is not materialized in this life, but it awaits a new and better life, which we come into through a resurrection. And Jesus has just shown the Sadducees that the Bible, even as early as Exodus, and even before that, in the promises given in Genesis, was teaching us that resurrection was coming. And in the process, he showed the foolishness of these men. They didn't understand scripture, and they didn't understand the power of God. And it means resurrection is true. It is necessary. And Jesus' own death and resurrection proves that it can happen and will happen. And today, Easter, is our annual reminder that God will raise you from the dead because he keeps his promises. Easter is your proof that Jesus wasn't lying. It's your proof that your faith is not a fairy tale. It's your assurance of your hope that this life is not the end of you. And however this life ends for all of us, whether we live a long and peaceful life or not, whether we die of the disease of the day or whether we die in our sleep, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in eternal terms. It matters to us, and I understand that. We all have our feelings about how our life goes, and it's natural. But if you take yourself out of the here and now and give yourselves eyes for eternity, none of that matters. Because when you die and you're resurrected and you live here again, all of that will be ancient history never to come to mind again. Now, if you're hearing this today and you're wondering, I want this hope, I don't know how to have it, I've never had it. Well, how can you know that death will not be the end of your joy and not the end of you? How do you know you can come back again and live again on this life, uh, on this earth, in a new body that will never die? Well, the answer is it's very simple. All you have to do is answer one question. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Do you believe that when he died, he paid the price for your sin? And do you believe that having paid the price for your sin, now he will give you eternal life. And when you die in a day to come, he will resurrect you and bring you with him into the kingdom. If you believe that based on the testimony of the word of God, on what the Bible itself is telling you, then the Bible says you have been forgiven of your sins forevermore and you will receive eternal life. You will be with Jesus in the kingdom on the basis of your faith alone in that promise. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's that topic of resurrection again. You believe that God raised him from the dead, Paul says you will be saved. Because with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. This is not about how good you are. It's not about how much work you do. The gospel is about believing that Jesus did all that's required and his death and resurrection proves that your faith in him is not a fairy tale. It's well-founded, it's rational. You're believing in the living God and in his word. Easter is the opportunity every year for us to revisit the truth of resurrection and every other day of the year is when we live it out. We live with a hope that transcends our circumstances, that doesn't make light of our circumstances, and we'll know suffering like the rest of the world, but that suffering doesn't define us, and our death is not the end of us, and our hope transcends all of that, the hope that knows one day we will be resurrected. I pray for those who are hearing this message that if you have not yet believed, you will today, and for those who join me today in our faith in Jesus, I pray that the Father will lift your spirits knowing that your hope is in the next life and not in this one. Thank you for joining us on Easter. I'm gonna pray as we finish today, and I ask that you would pray with me for those who may be confessing Christ for the first time with us this morning. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Father, we lift up before you and ask in intercession through Christ that you would touch hearts of men and women this morning on this special day, that as you raised your son from the dead, you would raise them to new life by giving them faith, faith to believe what you testify in your word. Father, wherever they are now, we pray they'd have courage to confess, perhaps to no one but you, but they would confess. Or if they are with others, that they would confess to one another that they do believe this truth and that they look forward in hope to the day they will live again because of the grace and mercy given to them in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, for the, those who may have prayed and believed, placed their faith in Jesus today. We pray for them, Father, to have the courage to reach out to us so that we might walk alongside them. And Father, for your children today, those who are listening to your word for the edification that it gives, I pray, Father, that they are encouraged, encouraged to walk in a hope that cannot be taken from them, a knowledge that death is not the end of them, that even death itself can no longer change their future. We thank you for that promise in Jesus, that he is death on the cross has saved and given us a new life. Thank you, Father, for that today. Thank you for the men and women and technology that has allowed us to deliver your message as you have made it possible to the world. And we thank you, Father, that it has touched hearts according to your purpose. Help us to live it out. And bring us back together, Father. We know that our time apart is necessary, but it is also a time, Father, we long to see end. Bring it to its proper end soon and keep us safe so that we may continue to praise you here in this world, even as we long to be with you in the next. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.